0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're The, the Trade, trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk IPEF, we'll talk the new European Forced Labor Prevention Act, and... We're going to talk about bracing for the coming beer shortage, all in this next episode of The Trade Guys.
1: Well, welcome back to The Trade Guys. This is Scott. One more brief reminder, uh, particularly those of you who listen in close to real time. Next Monday and Tuesday, September 19th and 20th, Bill and I will offer our our two-day course called Crash Course with the Trade Guys on trade policy and all things. We've got a great group of participants uh, lined up for this course that's available via Zoom. And I realize this is late, but if you are interested, uh, please check us out on csis.org, click on Executive Education, and you'll find the details of the course there. So those of you who are listening and planning to attend, we look forward to seeing you and speaking with you in a few days.
0: All right, guys, last week, we talked about Ufflepa. This week, we need to talk more about IPEF. First of all, Bill, tell us what IPEF actually is. We know that last week, the United States hosted 13 countries for the first in-person ministerial of IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. What's it all about and what's your reaction?
2: Well, it's the administration's plan B. I think most of us think that if the goal, and I think this is the goal, is to reaffirm the U.S. presence in the Indo-Pacific region to demonstrate. Our commitment to the region. The right answer is to, is the old Trans Pacific Partnership, which Trump pulled out of. We're currently, you know, everybody else went ahead without us. So the right answer would be rejoining what is called CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans Pacific Partnership. The administration doesn't want to do that. This was a toxic issue within the Democratic Party in 2016. I mean, even though it was an Obama initiative, the party's left wing was very unhappy with it. It was a big intra-party battle. And the Biden folks, all of whom were scarred by that battle, simply don't want to do it again. So they've come up with IPEF, which is distinct from CPTPP or TPP in a couple of respects. One, it's not a true trade agreement in the sense that it doesn't include market access. It doesn't address tariffs. It does address issues that may affect markets like regulations and standards, but there's no direct market access in it. Neither does it or neither will it require congressional approval, is what the administration has said, which means that the United States doesn't intend to make any significant concessions in the negotiations, because if it did, Congress would have to approve them. Both of those have been, I think, negative signals to the other countries, because it's a sign that we expect them to give and we have nothing to offer. Even so, I think last week's meeting was a success. All 14 countries showed up. 13 of them, including the United States, agreed to participate in all four of the pillars being negotiated. And India agreed to uh, participate in three. So it's, you know, in the sense of participation, it was a success. We talked to uh, a negotiator from one of the other countries the other day and One of the comments he made about the mood in Los Angeles was that despite the limitations of the agreement, there's a lot of enthusiasm for it. And the enthusiasm is based on countries really welcoming the U.S. presence in the region. They think it's important. They want the U.S. there for various reasons. I think some of them quietly as a counterweight to China. And they're prepared to go along with what the United States is proposing in order to make this a successful agreement. That's all a good sign. The pillars are trade, supply chains, infrastructure, and decarbonization. It's called the clean economy pillar. And the fair economy pillar, which is focusing on taxation and anti-corruption. They didn't cut any deals. They agreed on what they would be discussing in each of those pillars. Uh, and then they proceeded not to discuss them. But that that's what comes next. For example, in the trade pillar, they're going to focus on labor, environment, digital economy, agriculture, transparency, and good regulatory practices, competitive competition policy, trade facilitation, inclusivity, and technical assistance and cooperation. I think my take on it and reflected in my column this week is these are all good things and supply chain cooperation is a good thing. The construct, though, is really the triumph of idealism over pragmatism. These are good things. You can't say that transparency is bad. You can't say that increasing worker wages is bad. You can't say that decarbonization is bad. I mean, you can, but people would look at you funny if you did. The problem is that these things are not free. Infrastructure costs money. Decarbonization costs money. Labor reforms in a lot of these countries are controversial and there will be resistance from companies. Even supply chain cooperation, which sounds benign, let's all work together to share what we're doing and what we've got so that we can avoid future shortages. You know, when you drill down, what that means is companies have to cough up proprietary data about what they do and where their supply chains are and who they get their parts and components from and probably how much they're paying. And companies don't want to do that. They don't want to do that to their own government, probably for tax reasons, and they certainly don't want to do it to other governments. So I think what's going on or what will go on in the negotiations is countries saying, you're asking us to do good things, but they're hard things. They're politically hard. They're legally hard in some countries, and they're expensive. What are you going to do to make it easier for us to say yes? I mean, that's the pragmatic question. What do we get? And so far, the U.S. doesn't really have an answer to that. They hinted at a new answer. And one answer is money. We'll help you decarbonize. We'll use the Development Finance Corporation, and that's a, a good thing, uh, and the XM Bank. The new thought is let's think about public private partnerships. Let's enlist companies to help out here. And they announced the first one, which was an upskilling initiative for industry. And I think seven of the 14 countries are participating. As I recall, there are 11 companies. Amazon is one, I think Visa is another one, that agreed to participate to help develop public-private enterprises in those seven countries to help women become an important part of the trading system. Good thing, no question, and probably something where these companies will pony up some money, and that may be the wave of of the future for this negotiation. Scott, now that Bill has torn through IPEF, what's
0: your reaction?
1: Well, I somehow get the feeling that uh, a couple of decades hence, when Bill and I are still the trade guys, hopefully, this is going to be a trivia question on a graduate economics exam somewhere. Nobody's going to remember what this is. Look, I understand the politics that are at play. I, I recall well the Obama administration finally getting serious about closing out TPP in 2015 or 2016. And having all three major presidential candidates, that would be Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and Donald Trump, opposing TPP. So the politics are never easy, but uh, easy things tend not to last. And this one reminds me of just something, we're going to do this because we can't do what we ought to do. I recall an old George Carlin joke about a bumper sticker, Jesus is coming, look busy. And so, look, the, you know, something's going to happen in the Asia-Pacific. The U.S. needs to have activities there. This feels more like looking busy than doing anything important. The other thing I would add is we're important in the region because of a lot of geopolitical and historical reasons. And almost every every nation in this region wants to hedge between the United States and China. And they show up at meetings like this for exactly that reason. It's a good way to hedge. It's a good way to sit and listen to your uh, designated lectures from some U.S. official about how you ought to be running your country. But there's not much uh, beyond polite head nods that creates an incentive to really change anything in their economy because we're not offering to change anything in ours. We're not offering them better market access. So I don't mind talking. It's uh, Churchill's line. Jaw, jaw is better than war, war. So let's keep talking. I do understand the motives of both the United States to engage and the partner economies to hedge. But I just I don't see this picking up any speed and going anywhere, mostly because there's nothing to incentivize change. So I'll pay it the service it uh, it appears to deserve. And I hope to be surprised that it's better than I think it is.
2: Well, a role reversal. Scott is the cranky one today. <laughs> and I'm, I'm passing
0: out compliments. So Scott hasn't been cranky since he moved to North Carolina. It's like, That's right. it's really...
1: Yeah, I don't have a lot to be cranky about anymore.
2: Is a hurricane coming? Like...
1: No, not at all. Not at all. And uh, the, you got you to be an a- Appalachian State fan to really understand what's going on here. Oh, man. Yeah.
0: Talk about the... awesome. Appalachian yeah. State. Wow! Yeah, big uh, big victory over
1: a, a highly rated Texas A&M team, and then uh, if you follow college football, uh, ESPN is in Boone, North Carolina, for College Game Day this Saturday. So
0: incredible, just incredible! Yeah. Like who would have thunk it? Also, great waves at the Outer Banks very recently. It looked like pipeline out there. My son sent some videos and I was like, whoa, this is, this is not North Carolina. This looks like Hawaii. It's unbelievable.
1: You can do worse uh, as far as location goes.
0: No doubt. We've talked about IPEF and, you know, I, I still don't really understand what India's problem with this particular deal is. Is it worth discussing further or
2: should we table that for a future episode? Well, I can say a brief word about it. First, I think there was a collective quiet sigh of relief when they opted out of the trade because nobody wanted them in. Their history in the WTO and their history in another regional agreement, RCEP, the Regional what Comprehensive Economic Partnership, was they participated, I think, for 15 years, slowed everything down, minimized the outcome, and then dropped out and refused to sign in the end. And people are... Perfectly happy to have them not there. The reason given was I think they wanted to pursue, that they were concerned about some of their policies, particularly on the environment, had not yet been clarified and they didn't feel ready to enter into a negotiation that might force them to make commitments that they didn't want to make. I think that the history of India is that it has always been a reluctant partner in the global trading system. They have always been... uh, much more protectionist than anybody else. And it's a political issue. In fact, I've talked to people who work for the Indian government about why this happens. And the answer is uh, that this is a decision that gets made higher up by the political people. It's not a decision that gets made by the bureaucracy. And what happens anytime there's going to be a trade agreement is the many Indians, particularly small businesses, small shopkeepers and store owners, farmers who think they're going to lose as a result of the trade agreement, come in and really mob the government. I mean, if you, you watch what the, what the farmers did to Modi and the Indian government, I guess, last year and over other issues, but there's a very powerful force in, in India against trade liberalization and governments of all the parties have ended up bowing to that. And I think this time they just decided to avoid going down that road and they opted out from the beginning. All right. Well, that's a wrap on IPEF. And
0: unfortunately, we don't get to talk about Ufflepah this week because I just like saying Ufflepah. But we do have serious matters to talk about. This week, the European Union unveiled its long-awaited forced labor regulation. What does this regulation seek to achieve, gentlemen?
2: Well, it's not Ufflepah, and I don't know what its acronym is, but it is a regulation providing for the enforcement against imports that are made with slave labor or forced labor. I haven't examined all the details. It just came out yesterday. Uh, it looks like the original U.S. statute, going back to 1930 more than it looks like Uffalpa. First of all, it applies to all forced labor everywhere, whereas Uffalpa is Xinjiang-specific. Uh, it identifies, you know, the location. The reason the Europeans generalized it, and we have a general statute too, so it's, it's not like we are focused only on Xinjiang. The reason the Europeans did that is because that allows them not to get in trouble with the WTO and to have a, 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 a statute that doesn't dis- doesn't explicitly discriminate against a particular country, because any country that is engaged in this practice is going to be a target. The other difference, and, and we talked about this when we discussed Offalpah, was that Offalpah switches the burden of proof from the government to the importer. The importer has to prove their innocence. You know, their product is not made with forced labor. The EU uh, directive does not do that. The EU directive leaves the burden uh, on the government to demonstrate that the product is made with forced labor, which is like the rest of the U.S. statute. And in the EU case, there's always the question of what does the center do and what do the countries do? And in this case, enforcement and determination is left with the 27 countries. So each country will have to decide for itself how aggressively it wants to enforce it. And each country will have to take the action at the border to stop things from coming in if they decide it shouldn't come in. It'll be a general directive, but it'll be national enforcement. So
0: what are some of the key differences between the EU proposal and the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act? Is the rebuttable Presumption language the same. What are the differences?
1: No, that's, that's what gets flipped in this case. Uh, this is back to, uh, the violations have to be alleged by the government. In this case, EU member state governments. So uh, national governments, national authorities. And then they have, to, they have to basically prove that they're correct versus this guilty till proven innocent standard with respect to, uh, to Uyghurs and Xinjiang it doesn't appear to amount to much. It seems to me that uh, Europe will have a number of challenges over the next 12 to 18 months, including an energy crisis, which is beginning now, uh, which may well lead to a food crisis in which I can't imagine local or or member state customs authorities putting a lot of uh, attention and uh, time and effort into this particular directive.
0: Bill, so if enacted, will the EU plan result
2: the same halting of packages at the border? In theory, yes. I mean, we'll see how aggressively it's enforced. And I think what you'll find is some countries being much more active than others and much more aggressive in identifying problem countries than others. You have to put it in the larger context. I mean, Scott's raised an interesting point. I mean, the EU is heading down the road toward some dilemmas because they're also pursuing another directive that basically is kind of a due diligence directive Telling EU companies they need to pay more attention to who they're dealing with in other countries and not deal with bad guys, and this is all noble. You know, the United States' trade policy is trying to move in the same direction. You know, they talk about sustainability, human rights is much more of an element of U.S. policy now than it has been in in past administrations. But inevitably, that runs up against basic economic demands. I mean, on a lot of this stuff, you know, when you're talking about the transition to clean energy. Particularly the, interest, uh, the transition to electric vehicles. You're talking about batteries, which means you're talking about critical minerals, which means you're talking about China. When it comes to polysilicon, you're talking about forced labor. And so we've seen this dilemma four square in, in the United States in the solar panel case, which we talked about in the spring, where if you want to accelerate the transition to, to green, you need more solar panels. If you're not going to take solar panels from China, because the polysilicon is made with forced labor, you're slowing down the green transition. So which value are you going to prioritize? And the Europeans are about to confront exactly the same dilemma. All right, let's talk about a different topic
0: now because no great trade guys episode is complete without talking about a 301 investigation, right? So what's going on now with calls for a 301 investigation into Mexican agricultural Exports is this going to affect our salsa and guacamole? Holy guacamole! What's going on?
1: It seems. It seems to me that uh, that this is given the complaints arising from Florida growers, there must be a senator facing reelection in in fifty days or so. Would that, would that be the case? Ah, yes. It's one Marco Rubio Oh his.
2: yeah, we we remember him. And apparently, the race is closer than expected. I gather he's only. The last poll I read, he was only two points ahead, which is a little bit surprising. Yeah, it's a a lot surprising.
1: In general, uh, you can count on enmity between the Florida fruits and vegetable growers and the Mexican fruits and vegetable growers. It's an issue that not only precedes USMACA, it precedes NAFTA, maybe as, as old as time itself. But this is a long-standing long dispute between Florida, particularly Florida growers, and the fresh fruits and vegetables uh, growers and and distributors in Mexico. So it's no doubt a powerful election year subject in the state of Florida, but I don't think anything of the substance has changed. Bill Bill may have a better insight on that.
2: It's an old issue, full disclosure, when I was at the National Foreign Trade Council, I... I fought on this on on tomatoes and we were on the, the side of the Mexicans. This is a little bit of a novel approach because it's 301, which has not been tried before with Mexican vegetables and where they basically allege a government act policy or practice that is discriminatory. That kind of raises it to a new level, puts it in a new venue. Most of the past cases, which have involved tomatoes have involved uh, anti-dumping or countervailing duties. In other words, the Florida growers allege that the Mexicans are dumping their tomatoes, selling below cost, or they're getting subsidies. And uh, the the Florida growers actually have won on that at various times over the years. And it's been a very fraught case because they win, the duties get imposed. And then over time, as market conditions change, the duties don't really have any effect, and the Florida growers continue to lose market share. The Mexicans have some built-in advantage. They have a climatic, climactic advantage, or I guess climate advantage is the right word. They have a longer growing season. They can grow outdoors, and uh, their tomatoes are attractive to consumers, as they will point out. You know, this has been a battle that's been going on that basically the Florida growers want protection, and the, the Mexicans have a competitive product. Sometimes the growers have won. Sometimes they haven't done so well. There was a blueberry case that I recall. I'm not sure that was just Mexico, but that the I think the ITC looked at It's a 201 uh, case, and uh, that one went away. So I don't want to say the Mexicans are entirely innocent, but I think that what's going on here is primarily politics. As it, Scott noted, you know the fact that this has arrived 50 days before the election. Is significant. You know, it didn't show up last year. I mean, the things they're complaining about have been going on for a long time, but here it is right before the election. And I will bet you that once the election is over, this is going to fade away. Bill, I don't mean to question
0: your patriotism or anything like that, but like, are you pro-tomato or anti-tomato?
2: I am pro-tomato. I love tomatoes. <laughs> I mean, look, I worked for John Hines for 14 years. Uh, ah, yeah. How can you not be pro-tomato?
1: Yes. Look, this is one of these circumstances. Bill's absolutely right about how long this argument's been going on and how difficult it is to muster any sympathy for either side in the the debate. But in my old consumer products marketing days say, if you're fighting over a shrinking piece of the pie, you're better off trying to make the pie a little bigger. And so promoting fresh fruits and vegetables to all Americans would be, I think, a good thing. Avocados from Mexico has a has a terrific marketing campaign behind it that I think is growing the market. And, and, and that's uh, a
2: good example, Scott, of exactly the point you made. Because in the beginning, when they start when we started to let Mexican avocados in, The California, Californians originally were unhappy about that because it was competition, but then they realized that the smart strategy was make the market bigger. Sure. So there you have avocado toast. Yeah. So now we're, yeah, now we're all eating avocado toast and I defer to you on whether that's a good idea or not, but I've never had it.
1: I've seen my kids order it, so I know it exists on menus.
2: <laughs> so you have Gen Z kids? Yes. <laughs> Mine are Gen X and millennials, and they don't do avocado toast, I don't think. My Gen
0: Z kids absolutely do uh, avocado toast, no question. Speaking of something that we know a lot about, and I want to just have a final note here on this, is there really a beer shortage coming this winter, and why? I mean, beer consumptions increased 53% in 2022, according to top data, and has seen a 25% increase since the start of the pandemic. Are we really in danger of a beer crisis here?
1: Well, I think the critical ingredient here is, is carbon dioxide, yeah. which is used in processing. And it's a, it's used in a lot of consumer products and a lot of products, including dry ice, which was used in the shipment of COVID-19 vaccines. So have been a lot of reasons that demand for carbon dioxide, industrial carbon dioxide used in food processing to be up. I personally think this is a problem that the markets will solve themselves. And the trade guys, and you Andrew in particular, don't need to be concerned about this. Because when prices do go up for for production ingredients and uh, products like CO2, a couple things happen one is that manufacturers will increase supply that's what a price signal does you also can find substitutes so i personally recommend kentucky bourbon something from the buffalo trace distillery agree which which is a great substitute for beer and does not have any carbon dioxide used in its production process
0: and depending on what you're drinking could be less calories
1: oh definitely is but having said that maybe we ought to want to tell the kids who are who are seized with climate change worries to drink water instead of beer that's the other Possible way to solve the problem. Tell them there's carbon in beer, and uh, watch the, watch their behavior respond. But look, I think markets fix this over time. I
0: mean, what worries me is like football season's here, and during football season, I would think that beer consumption goes up.
1: Well, yes, but the fact that you haven't noticed this uh, sh- this so called shortage until you read about it in the newspapers may give you an idea of its, it's seriousness.
0: seriousness. Okay, good. I feel I will sleep much better now, boys. And Scott, good plug there for the Buffalo Trace Distillery. I'd throw in uh, Blanton's on my list for those of us uh, who enjoy bourbon out there. Gentlemen, as always, a pleasure. See you next week. See you next week. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.